Virunua Hetit is our Nuku 56. She is a master weaver and one of our country's most celebrated contemporary artists. Although the humble wahine from Waifetu cringes when you describe her as that. Virunua is an uri of renowned weavers and teachers. Her grandmother, the late Dame Rangi Marie Hetit, and her mother, the late Erenora Puketapu Hetit, as well as her auntie, the late Degress Te Kanawa. She says being surrounded by art and having parents as master carvers of their art meant her journey was pretty straightforward. Today, her work is in National Museum collections. It adorns the walls of galleries. She has kākahu that are awarded for excellence, like the New Zealander of the Year Award. And most importantly, her work is worn and carried by her tamariki and mukupuna. Veranoa also helps whānau around the world to reclaim Māori art traditions through the Hetit School of Māori Art, an online kura where she teaches raranga, tāniko and kākahu, including korowai. In this episode, we talk about the importance of keeping our art practices alive, the beauty and vitality of the harakeke plant, and we learn the correct kupu for our different woven cloaks. Whakarongo mai. Kia ora, I'm Kiane. Nuku is a movement. We're empowering Indigenous wahine to be agents of change, cultivating opportunities to shape the world we want. Through this series, we're meeting 100 kick-ass Indigenous wahine doing things differently. They show us how the world can be shaped by our unique Indigenous voice. It's all about who we are and not who we've been told to be. Nuku, mahine, mohine, kiahine. Morena Veranoa Hetit. Morena. Uh, thank you for inviting us to your beautiful whare here in Waifetu. It has been a beautiful morning. Before we even started recording this morning, um, I learned all about your papakainga here, your little village of whānau, um, the beautiful maunga, the marae that we can see from your house, and of course, all the amazing pieces of artwork in your whare. So I just want to mihi to you to thank you for inviting us here to your home. Um, we... Oh, there are so there are so many ways that I could introduce you and talk about the mahi that you do, but I think we'll explore that over this podcast and we'll start with you introducing who you are and where you're from. So, where did you grow up? Did you grow up here in, in Waifetu or did you grow mm-hmm. up in other parts of the country? Uh, I started my life um, in Wainuiomata. Uh, my parents were one of the first couples who built a home in Wainuiomata, and there are many Māori families that are still living there some 50 years later mm. um, that I went to school with. Um, then my my father's older brother and his wife were tragically killed in a car accident, leaving five children orphaned. And so we packed up our home and we moved to Turangi oh. so we could um, care for these these children who had so tragically lost their parents. Um, the youngest was two oh. um, at that time, so he grew up to be my brother. Mm. Um, from Tsurangi, we moved to Rotorua um, because my dad was asked to teach at what is now known as Te Puya. So he was a teacher at the carving school there at the institute. 
and my mum was a, a weaver there. So I spent my early teenage years in Rotorua. Um, but my mother had a real yearning for home, for Waifetu. And so again we moved and we settled in Waifetu in the early 80s and um, have remained here ever since. So I have grown up with quite a unique name and when I look at your name, it's quite a unique name as well. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got your name? Where did it come from? My maternal grandmother, her name was Vera and I have a lot of uh, older female cousins and none of them had that name, which is really unusual in a Māori family to not have a mokopuna named after a grandmother. Um, so my mother and father, who have always been creative, were always creative, they grabbed my grandmother's name, Vera, and my mother, who was born Eleanor, and they put Vera and Noor together and came up with Vera Noor. My dad, who filled in um, the birth certificate details, he changed the spelling, so instead of an R at the end as an Eleanor, he put an A, so it's Vera Noor. That's beautiful. And as far as I know, I'm the only one in the entire world. <laughs> it, um, Vera Noor, not spelt the same, but uh, pronounced the same, I think, is, is Spanish for summer, which is kind of ironic because I don't really like summer. <laughs> <laughs> I... Um I had sent you some questions before we came to see you. And one of the questions I asked was, was your journey straightforward? And when I talk about your journey, at the moment, you, I am happy to acknowledge and call you a master weaver. I don't know whether or not you acknowledge yourself as that. Um, and am completely in awe of the mahi that you do. Um, the cloaks that you make, the weaving, the tāniko, the, the contemporary artwork. And so when I asked if your um, journey was straightforward, lots of people who actually reply to that say, no, it was all over the place and it was this and that. And you said, yes, it was. It's very straightforward. Can you tell me a little bit about how you were born into this mahi? I, I was blessed. I was, obviously, if I could just go back, I don't deem myself a master weaver. <laughs> I, I can't um, do that. Um, but I was blessed to have been born into a family of artists or a family that loved creating. But I was also blessed to have been born to a mum and dad who were great teachers so not only were they masters at their craft, but they were also masters at um, passing on the knowledge. So my memories of childhood are happy ones. In my memories, it is never raining. It never rained when I was a child. Mm. It did, but in my memories it didn't. Um, my memories of my childhood are of being not only encouraged to be creative, but being celebrated for creativity. And it wasn't just the visual arts. Um, my father, uh, 
little boy from Tokanu um, grew up reading all the classic poets. And so at the drop of a hat, my dad can quote from Wordsworth or Bracken or Burns. And um, so we grew up with the love of words as well as the love of weaving and carving and painting and just creating. So my journey was straightforward and that it is what I knew and what I know. I mean, parents teach their children what they do. Mothers teach their daughters what they do. If they're a great cook, they teach their children how to cook. If they are a great knitter, they teach their children. So it just so happened my mother was a weaver Mm. and my father was a carver and, and painted. So it was an easy journey because I was just born on that path. And I did try other things, like I worked at New World. <laughs> just, I was actually going to ask you that. Yeah, as, a, <laughs> as a checkout operator. Um, and I, I remember one day I was asked by the, my supervisor to check, scrape the chewing gum off the aisle floors. And I was down on my hands and knees, scraping chewing gum off the floor and people pushing their trolleys around me. And I thought, what am I doing? Mm. This isn't me. And I stood up, I walked to the checkout, took my smock off and I walked out. I thought, I'm not doing this (laughs) for you. I worked in an office and I was terrible at that. So I didn't last long. Um, My parents started the first museum internship for Māori people. And I was one of the interns that worked at uh, the museum, the National Museum, when it was on Buckle Street. Um, and that was, it was great. I really enjoyed working with art. But there is, it's different when you're working with art that has already been created mm. and is sitting in a cabinet or is sitting in a drawer. It's catalogued in any way. It, there's a difference between that and creating and so I, I stopped that and I just created. So when I was about 22, um, my mother was teaching weaving at that stage and I became her assistant teacher. And then over the years, um, I could see, I can see now what my mum was doing. Um, she would take a day off and she'd say, okay, you can have the girls today. And then the next week she'd take two days off. So over time, um, it's not as if I replaced her, but I filled that space for her, which enabled her to use her time just creating. Because when you're a teacher, you give all of your creative energy and all of your energy to your students, which takes away your own creative energy. So that whole situation um, was good for both my mum and myself. She was a very wise woman, my mum. And that by um, giving me the the lead in teaching, she created my career pathway and she also gave herself the time to create. So she, she became a full-time artist at quite a young 
age and I became a full-time teacher at quite a young age. So I, I taught for Te Wānangōr Aukawa. Um, they had a design and art, they have a design and art programme there, which my parents helped write or design that, that programme. So I taught that. I um, taught long-term unemployed under um, access schemes. Um, and for the Open Polytech of New Zealand, I taught there as well. Um, and was it a variety of um, weaving skills that you taught, or was it quite specific? Was it just mahiraranga, or was it a number of different sort of creative outlets? <laughs> um, well, we had my husband and I, my husband Sam and I, always, as my parents did taught together, taught as a team. So my, my when my mum and dad were teaching, he was the carving teacher and mum was the weaving teacher. They were a team. And my husband and I were like that as well. He was the carving teacher, I was the weaving teacher. But when we were working for the Open Polytech, we got made redundant on the same day. Wow. I remember that day. It was Valentine's Day. Oh, what? <laughs> I had a. Gee, I, they, they really wanted you guys to go out and have a date that night. <laughs> I had a bottle of wine in the fridge, and we were going to celebrate Valentine's Day. But in, instead, it uh, yeah, it wasn't really a celebration. We came home shocked um, because at that time we had we both had students who we were teaching. Mm. Um, so for the next three years, we just survived you know, with five children and a mortgage and all the bills that come with those things. We survived with our, our artwork and with the odd teaching jobs that I would pick up. You know, I'd hold part-time weaving lessons and things like that. Um, but getting back to your question, which is, what did I teach? Was it weaving? <laughs> My mother and I designed what is known as the Hetit Matrix. And I was, I guess, the guinea pig for that. So my mum would teach me something and then she'd go on and teach me something else and, and she would say, now how did that work for you? Did you find that easy or was it hard or was it hard to understand? And so over a lot of years, we designed the Hetit Matrix based on what I found um, to be the most, um, the natural course of weaving. So, for example, you learn how to cut harakiki. Mm. You learn how to prepare it properly. You then move on to a kono. And from that kono, you learn all of these skills that sets you up for the next lesson, which is kōnai, and on and on and on. So um, that's what I taught. I taught the Hetit Matrix, and that's what I teach now to my students. When I look at the mahi that you create, there is a exquisite traditional element to mm. a lot of those work. And then there is also this absolutely stunning contemporary style that you have. It might be a little bit like asking you to pick a favourite child, mm. <laughs> but do you have, do you prefer one over the other? I, I love the traditional. I love working with mocha. That is my absolute um, love, is mocha and the traditional work. But um, I love my home 
but I love going on holiday sometimes and working in contemporary um, ideas, designs, materials is like going on holiday. You know, you go away, you have a great time, you enjoy yourself, but you love coming home. Mm. And that's how I see working with the contemporary as going away and um, then coming back home to my traditional work, which I love. But I also have this... Um, uh, we're not a stagnant people. So we're not a stagnant people and we keep moving forward. Uh, so much of what I do now in terms of contemporary may in fact in a couple of hundred years be traditional. <laughs> it's very true actually. <laughs> yeah, I just like the idea that everything has potential mm. and I like creating potential, whether it be with my own ideas in my hands or whether it be with my students. See, having students, you are creating potential. Speaking of students, mm. so you've, you've taught for a number of other organisations, mm. other educational institutes, um, but you now run the Hittit School of Art mm. and it's an online school, which I find really fascinating because... I remember growing up, um, my grandmother was a weaver and my auntie is a weaver and they would have to travel to Wānanga mm -hmm. uh, all around the Mutu to participate in, in weaving uh, Wānanga with other wahine or other tāne because I know some pretty phenomenal mm -hmm. tāne weavers. Um, and they would have books and they would have all these other things. How has creating an online school really helped to not necessarily promote weaving, but to be able to um, have mahi raranga, have these types of traditional and contemporary art practices more accessible to people? Um, well, the Hittite School of... The Hittite School of Māori Art was actually established a long time ago by my parents. Mm. Um, but, of course, then it was face-to-face. -face. And even after my mother passed away, um, I continued teaching weaving for the Hittite School of Māori Art. Of course, it was known as different things, um, but it, it, at its core was the Hittite School of Māori Art. So Sam and I were made redundant from the Open Polytech and we were kind of just making ends meet. Um, I spent a lot of time just creating, but, but my sister Lillian, she knew how much I loved teaching and um, she was concerned that um, I wasn't doing as much as I should. And so she asked me one day, how many people can you fit in your, your studio to teach? How many? And I said, oh, six. You know, it's only a small space. And she said, so you can teach six people. And when would you teach them? And I said, well, perhaps on weekends from nine till three. So you'll teach six people to weave for 12 hours and I said yeah and she said no how about we teach hundreds of people how about you teach when you're sleeping <laughs> and that's what we do now my sister Lillian is an amazing force she's um, a computer whiz she can 
put together a website and upload my lessons and um, communicate with all of these students that we have and it's nothing to her. Mm. So she's that side of the Hetit School of Party Art. She's the computer techie admin girl and I do the teaching. So we started online and what we were doing is we were asking people for a koha mm. to, to join our course. Um, but unfortunately that word koha um, is, was, was misunderstood by many and instead of it being a fair exchange, um, some people would pay me zero dollars to learn how to weave a kete. And that hurt me because I felt that my knowledge and the knowledge of my tipuna wasn't valued. Mm. So we took a step back for a while and we reassessed the situation. And we thought, no, we need to value the knowledge. We need to value the work that we are putting into it. And so we became a real school, you know, um, and went about things in a proper business plan. And, and from there, it's been a lot better because people value what they're being taught. Mm. And I appreciate the students for valuing um, the knowledge. Um, so we have students all over the world, um, in London and New York. Many of our students are based in Australia. And I think they like it because it's a link to home. Mm. Um, I have... I have ma male students, I have non-Māori students. Um, I have a lot of older women who, are, who have come to me and I've spoken to many of them who have said that this way of learning suits them because many times, you know, they give me examples, many times they sit in a classroom and there's all these young women around them and they find that the younger woman can pick up knowledge quicker and they become quite whakamā to ask questions of the teacher or they become whakamā to continually ask the same question. So they appreciate my lessons because they can just push pause, they can push rewind and they can play it as often as they like. Uh, the other good thing about the online teaching through the Hittit School of Māori Art is that I'm available whenever the student's ready. So I have a, a young woman who is now selling her kite all over the place to galleries and to private commissions. She has six children. And so she would put the children to bed at night and she would do her lessons then at night time. You can't do that in face-to-face -face mm. learning. So the online learning, um, it suits so many people, especially over lockdown. Uh, and over lockdown, uh, mm. earlier this year, I saw that the Hetit School of Māori Art was offering a free programme mm. to make kono. Yes. How, how has that been quite successful? Because I know that it started during the lockdown in Aotearoa, mm. but I'm aware that you're going to keep it going. For as long as there are parts of the world that are in lockdown, we'll keep that programme running. We have 
thousands and thousands of people all over the world weaving kono. And then over lockdown, and I can show you later, I wove a series of kono and I wove a kono every day, starting from the tiniest kono to a large kono. And all of these kono fit into each other and they're more of a nest. Wow. So I wove a kono every day and it was wonderful knowing that there were all of these thousands of people around the world who were doing exactly the same thing that I was doing and we were weaving together. Mm. I mean, there's something quite... mm, It was reassuring about that. Something reassuring. It's powerful. It is powerful. It's very powerful. And when when you think about just the art of weaving in itself and all of the things that weaving represents mm. and the bringing together mm. of, you know, of the whenu coming together and that's your connecting of whānau, connecting of um, whakapapa, connecting of different ways and values and people and, and to think that there's this sort of global movement mm. of that all at the same time. Yeah. That's it's powerful. It is powerful. Gather harakeke because it, mm. it grows in a lot of countries in the world but not everywhere. So I had a printmaker in New York, New Jersey or New York, one of those um, places who was a, she's a printmaker. She cut one of her prints into strips wow. and she wove a corner out of it. And it was one of the most amazing things. Another person thought, well, my 2020 calendar is useless. So she cut that up and she made a corner out of the 2020 mm-hmm. calendar, you know, Someone made a, a kono out of Cocoa Pop cereal box. So there's all these, but they were creating. Mm. And for this, for a time, for a short time over such a turbulent time, they were able to just focus on their hands and focus on creating. And there's something really beautiful about that. In the educational space and in learning and teaching weaving and in teaching um, the, the Hittite matrix. It's also really important to teach correct names and correct practices of the different things that we have. Mm. Um, and you and I were talking a little bit earlier around Korowai mm. and the name of Korowai and, and the fact that we've, you know, it's been amazing to see the resurgence of um, our Māori arts and our Māori practices come back into Aotearoa over the last 20 plus years. Um, but some of the things that haven't necessarily resurged with the practice are the names. Mm-hmm. And we've lost some of those names along the way and have just used one word to describe all of those things. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important for us to actually learn the correct ingoa for for each individual. You know, a cloak is... It's a kuro, everyone's like, oh, it's a kurawai. But it's not a kurawai because each different item mm. and how it's made and what it's made with has has its own unique ingwa. Yes, yes. Can you tell me what is a kurawai? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me go back to the beginning. So the umbrella term for, for a cloak uh, is kākahu, and that's the term we now use for clothing. Mm. So kākahu is the umbrella term for a cloak. Uh, But under that umbrella term come different names and each of those 
garments or cloaks under that umbrella term of kākahu is named according to its use or what it is adorned with. So, for example, a, a pew-pew, which comes under the umbrella term of kākahu, is called a pew-pew because it sways, it oscillates, and that's mm. pew-pew. A kahu kiwi is named so because it's adorned with kiwi feathers. A korowai is a kākahu where the main body of the kākahu, the main body of the cloak, is adorned with tassels. It's simple. Mm. It is so simple. If it doesn't have hookahooka, it's not a korowai. And I told you before, on my headstone she'll read the words. She had a thing about korowai. And I do have a thing about korowai. I do have a thing about the right terms being used according to what the kākahu is. Um, calling something, and this is not to belittle those whānau that have within their possession a machine-sewn feathered garment. I'm not putting that down. But to name that a korowai is belittling the many hundreds of hours of work that my great-grandmother and my great-great-grandmother and my great-great-great-grandmother mm. put into making korowai. From the cutting of the flax to the putting it on somebody, naming something that's not a korowai is belittling them. And my te kanawa whānau, and myself, we've got a thing about getting this right. I mean, in, in this day, we are so um, wanting for our reo to be used properly. And that's all us weavers want. We just want that as well, mm. for the correct terms to be used. And these are the things I teach. So all of my students who are doing my kākahu course, they know the correct terms. And, and you talked about that there, it's not to belittle a, a contemporary no, not cloak. At all. And my father own own one of those. It was gifted to my grandfather by a school in recognition of his contribution mm-hmm. to that school. My partai is, what is what can, what should we call them? Kākahu. Kākahu. Because that's because yeah, that's what I ask. Like that's. Because I want to teach my whānau, mm. I want to, and, and I want to be correct because it's important to be correct. You know, we talk a lot about, about cultural appropriation and we talk a lot about colonisation and we talk a lot about all of these different things um, that have negative impacts on our on our culture. Mm. And I want to ensure that my tamariki mukapuna are saying the correct thing so that we can really um, bring those back, bring those ingwa back. Well, I think when in doubt, like if you don't know what the feathers are, if you don't know if it's a kahu kiriru or a kahu <laughs> peihana, <laughs> just use the term kākahu. That's mm. your fall on, your fall back to, the term kākahu, because it, it's a safe word. It, it covers all cloaks, mm. but korowai specific. How many kākahu... And, and when I ask you this question, I mean kākahu, korowai, mm. kahu kiwi. Yeah. How many do you think you have made so far in your lifetime? Um, oh, I could count. Um, it's, it's over a dozen. See, I learnt old school. Mm. So 
I'm just going to digress, but I'm just going on to another pathway. But I will come back to the pathway to answer your question. When I was learning um, to weave, I was sitting next to my mum's students and they were on courses that had to be completed within a year. And so I, for example, wove takitahi, which is a, a weaving pattern where you go over one, under one, over one, under one, all the way. I was, my mum had me on takitahi for months and months and all my fellow students my fellow classmates, they were weaving complex patterns with beautiful colours and they were going over three, over five, under two, over (laughs) one. And I felt really envious. Mm. But I see now that what my mum was doing was she was teaching me old school. She was making sure that my foundations were right so that the walls that I built would stand. And although this was the way she would have preferred to teach the other students because there was a time constraint. She had to get them through all of these units of learning, I guess Mm. you could call them, in a certain time. Whereas with me, she could teach me properly. Mm. So I didn't actually start weaving kākahu until I was in my 20s. And I'm 54 now, Mm. so I haven't been weaving kākahu every year, but for the past... 12 years, I have made sure that I have completed within that year a kākahu of sorts. Wow. So it was only a a few weeks ago I realised that 2020 is the first time in 12 years that I have not completed or even started a kākahu. And I thought, I can't do that. (laughs) So a kākahu usually takes four to six months to weave. I said to my husband, I'm going to weave one before midnight on December the 31st, (laughs) 2020. He said, why? Why? And I told him why, and it made sense to him. We lost a mokopuna this year. My daughter-in-law had a miscarriage, and she was quite on in her pregnancy. It was their first baby and my eldest son, and the whole family was so excited for them. And we were so heartbroken when that mukopuna wasn't, Mm. (laughs) didn't eventuate. And the dream of what could have been broke our hearts, Mm. and it broke my heart as a nanny. And so I thought, I'm going to weave (coughs) a kurawai for my son and and my daughter-in-law and as a symbol of hope that one day they can wrap their baby up in this kōrōwai. So I'm going to weave it before um, December the 31st and gift it to my son and his darling and to my future mokopuna. Yeah. So it's going to be a, a tough month and a half ahead of me But I am absolutely determined and it's become more of a challenge to me. It's kind of like I'm willing this child into existence. Mm. It's become a, I've got my blinkers on and that is my entire focus is getting this. And I know what I'm going to weave and it's another type of um, kākahu and it's called a hihima. Mm -mm. And a hihima is a kōrawai 
but everything on it is white. Wow. And if you think of hihi, like the rays of the sun, this is my cloak of sunshine, my ray of hope mm. for this mokopuna too. That is absolutely, that's stunning. Mm. It's moving. Um, I, <laughs> I, first of all, how privileged are your mokopuna that, that they get such beautiful taonga from their nanny. Um, but I also know that other people recognise this taonga outside of your whānau and mm. that you have exhibited your work, mm. you have work in museum collections, you have work that um, adorns New Zealanders of the year and, and um, prominent uh, figures <laughs> across the country and I'm assuming around the world. Mm. What, what is that, um, what does it mean to you to have your work acknowledged in that way? It, I don't see it as my work acknowledged mm. in that way. I see it as weaving, Māori weaving acknowledged in that way. So it's not about me, it's about the weaving. Does that make sense to you? That makes complete sense and it makes, and it, it's very typical of people who are so extremely talented to also be so extremely humble about the fact that it's, it's not me, it's just this, you know, it's not me. No, you it's know, not it's me. It's also you. <laughs> I will say it. I, I credit me for saying <laughs> that it's very much also you. I, 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 I give credit to Harakiki mm. and to my tipuna. That's, yeah, those are the lights that are shining on my weaving stand. Light. Speaking of your tipuna and the mahi that you are doing today that reflects on them, there is a beautiful taonga that is, hang, that is in your house at the moment, which is a blanket that you have made. Mm. And um, it is in recognition of what your mother had taught you, and it's, and it's made from muka. And I, I know what it takes to create, to... to get the fibre of one blade of harakeke to create one strand of muka. Mm. And I look at this piece and the amount of work that has gone into it and the amount of muka that is in it, and I have never, ever seen a piece like this before in my life. I have never seen a blanket made of muka. I have never seen the patterns that are woven into that muka before. <laughs> Would you mind sharing a little bit about what that work represents? Mm. Um, I received a grant from Creative New Zealand to, this is way back in 2015, to create two cloaks, one cloak to represent what my dad had taught me, which was tukutuku and kōwhaiwhai, and one cloak to represent what my mum had taught me. And I found it really difficult to put into a metre by metre and a half piece of, uh, let me just use the word fabric when I speak of muka, mm. everything that my mum had taught me because she had taught me so much and more than just the technicalities of weaving. Um, 
So I, when I don't know what to do, I make mocha. That's what I do. And so I just made loads and loads of mocha for months. And as I was making mocha, I thought about my mum and I thought about the things that we had shared as mother and daughter, as friends and also as co-artists and co-workers. We shared the same studio space, so her studio was next door to mine. Um, So often we would weave together. When Waifatū Marae, I'm just going to go back into a bit of the history about the blanket. When Waifatū Marae was being built, um, women from around the community, Māori and non-Māori women, would gather together and they would sew patchwork quilts. They weren't the fancy quilts that you see now, they were quilts that were made out of big squares of fabric. And even today, though 60-something years later, though 70 years later, actually, wow. those quilts are still at the marae. Wow. And they're still put at the foot of the mattress. And it's not so much to offer warmth, but it's a symbol of manakitanga. And the odd times that I did stay at the marae, I would often lie under one of these patchwork quilts and I would think about the person. I would make up stories about the man who wore the flannelette shirt or those corduroy pants or that bit of denim. Mm. Who were they? What were their stories? So I had this thing about patchwork quilts right from when I was a child. Uh, My mum designed these power shell and metal pieces and her and I came up with the design and we would make A4 size patches of power shell and metal. I would make them in my studio, she would make them in her studio and at the end of the day we would come together and we would place them on the floor and move them around like some kind of jigsaw puzzle, trying to find the right look and we would stitch them together with metal. Then when my mum died, you know, before she passed away, she was giving all her clothes away. Here, this will fit you. Here, this looks nice on you. Take this. Wow. But there were, when she passed, there was a bag of clothes that nobody could fit or nobody wanted. And so I grabbed them. And I took a quilting class, you know, a proper quilting class with a <laughs> sewing machine and a teacher. Because... I wanted to sew a blanket out of mum's clothes and some of them still smelt like her. Mm. You know, and and I'd look at the shirt that she would wear while she was gardening and I thought that would look good in this blanket. So that whenever someone wanted a cuddle with nanny or a cuddle with mum, they could wrap themselves up in her blanket made of her clothes. So I'm making mocha, and I thought, that's what I'm doing. I'm going to make a quilt of mocha to represent the things that my mum taught me. She taught me to make mocha. She taught me to weave. But she also taught me to think beyond your weaving stand, Mm. to think beyond um, and to create the story and that's when I came up with that piece. It's gorgeous. And I can imagine that now when you, you know, want to spend time with your mum, 
you can sit on the couch and put that on. Yeah, and I do. Sometimes I do, you know, when I'm home alone, I'll just pull that over me. And now, most patchwork quilts are filled with the very thin um, filling. But I, in that one, I put a really heavy um, inner inside it because I wanted it to weigh me down. Mm. I wanted to feel it on me. Does that make sense? That completely makes sense. Yeah. I remember um, when my grandfather passed away, my nan, my, my, my papa was very well known for wearing a green polo shirt. <laughs> Everywhere he'd go. A green polo shirt, um, short blue shorts, like tare tare running shoes and a cap. And that was like his everyday attire. And when he passed away, um, my nan for Christmas got one of his green polo shirts and put it over a cushion, mm. a cushion cover. And she kept it as a shirt. She didn't cut it up or so. She just kept it as a shirt. She pinned the back all together and she gave it to me for Christmas. Mm. And I remember um, a couple of people that I knew kind of went, that's a weird Christmas present. That's like, the best like, Christmas what? present. That's a bit weird. And I said, do you know, any time I ever want to hug my grandfather, I just go and lie on that pillow. And it's it's like his chest in that shirt. And so I, I completely understand mm. what you mean and feel what you mean because those are, those are really beautiful, creative ways that we can keep those people with us mm. all the time and still have them comfort us mm. when we need to be comforted. And they used to do that so well. Yeah. Mm. But I think that quote is the best example or the best representation of what Mum taught me. Mm. Yeah. You, because you come from this lineage of um, such beautiful, talented women who have kept these practices alive over their, over their respective generations. How have you seen um, weaving change from the time that you were younger to today in, in the wider context? Because I know that within your whanau, it possibly hasn't changed a lot. It's always <laughs> been there. But how have you seen it change in society? Hmm. Or growing in society? Are we, are much, are we more aware of... Weaving? Are there more yeah, people doing I, it? Is it is it in a healthy space right now, or does it still need a lot of work and effort? Um, there are hundreds, hundreds of kete weavers, mm. not only in New Zealand but all over the world. Hundreds of kete weavers. So raranga is healthy, you know, because raranga is the term for basketry mm. weaving, not for cloak weaving. The kākahu work, you know, that kind of weaving we still need to work on that, and we've already spoken about the terminology. One thing we need to work on, you know, society, I guess, needs to work on is valuing the work. Mm. You know, from the cutting of the flax to the preparation to the boiling of the flax, the dyeing of the flax, the weaving of the kete. There's a lot of hours of work involved uh, we can put a minimum wage amount on each of those hours and it is still a lot less than people are willing to pay for a kete. Mm. You know, they say, oh, can you weave me a kete? But what will you do for me in return? You know, if we go back to this koha system, you know, like people will say to me, oh, 
our tipuna didn't sell their kite. This is true. They didn't sell their kite. But in return for that kite, they were given something, whether it be kai, whether it be I'll do your garden for mm, you. Yeah, time. So there was a koha system. But I can't give my bank manager kai mm. or do his gardens. You see, so it's still a valuing system. But it's a monetary value that we need to put on things now. And I, I want all of these weavers to have their time and their skills valued properly and appreciated mm. because they are doing something that was done by their tipuna. Mm. And, and unfortunately, we've got shops like the $2 shops, the bargain bins, you know, Pete's Emporium, all those. I shouldn't really name shops <laughs> by the actual name. Sorry, Pete's Emporium. <laughs> but um, we but do have all of these shops. These imported machine-made mm. things for $2. Mm. And we have a lot of, and I have seen government agencies gift out these $2 shop things on behalf of Aotearoa, you know, mm. to visiting dignitaries. And it hasn't even been woven in Aotearoa. It hasn't even been woven by Harakeke. I, yeah. So that, we need to those, value... Those things are banned in our house. Yes. And my nan made that very clear quite early on. Get that rubbish out of my house. Mm. One um, thing, they don't last long. <laughs> I mean, you can be walking down High Street mm. with all your shopping and the handles will drop off. Mm. So, you know, they're cheap and... They're not good. And I think valuing, there's there's two sides of valuing these taonga. There's the consumer side that we all need to put, we all need to ensure that we are valuing what we are buying correctly. And so when we are, when we are buying taonga, we're really conscious, as you say, of all the effort that's gone into that and just... Just because you might be fast at it and it might be mm. easy for you, that does not take away the no. fact that this is, you know, it's you've spent your entire lifetime learning how to make it mm. in there, you know, that quickly and <laughs> that yeah. easily. But also I know so many people who devalue themselves as the artist and they don't, they sort of say, oh, oh, you know, but no one's going to pay that, so I'll make it this price or I'll... Um, I, I don't think I'm good enough, so I will, you know. <laughs> and, and it's sort of a bit self-deprecating in a way mm. that they don't um, value and honour their own skill. Mm. And what I really want to encourage through this conversation is that more people really recognise what it is that they're doing and recognise that value. Because, I, I mean, I personally know a number of people who sort of just go, oh, but... I'm not Veranoa Hetit, <laughs> or I'm not, you know, my stuff's not in a museum, or my stuff's not in a shop, or my, I don't think my stuff is good enough for... The best weavers out there, mm. are, well, they're the marae weavers. Mm. The, you know, they're the nannies whose home is three doors down from the marae, and they weave. And the reason their kite aren't in museums is because they're at home weaving. Mm. Yeah. And my favourite type of kete isn't the Bansi kete for Kairo, it's the kete kumara. It's my nan's favourite too. It's I have like three of them in my house. <laughs> because it's the absolute beginning. Mm. It's, it's the very beginning. 
And it actually, it, it takes a lot to learn to weave a kumarakiti. Yeah. Because you, it's a different way of thinking mm. that you have to have holes in it and you have to have you gaps have to have and you have to have it. all yeah. of these things when you're, normally when you're weaving a kiti, you're trying to not have all of those things mm. within it. Yeah. I'm sorry about the noise next door. My son's oh, building. Hate point. Um, what were we talking about? About valuing. Valuing. Yeah, now... I do have artworks around the world and in, in museums, but they're there in collections to, you know, any weaver, any person can go into a museum collection and study work mm. and learn from it. So that's why my pieces are in there. They're not to whakamana me. Mm. It's the weaving. They're there as a teaching piece. They're there as an example of what someone can possibly learn from. And that's important to my family, to the Hittit family. Now, my nena Rangimari, she wrote a waiata. And she composed a waiata for her mukopuna. And in that waiata, she says, uphold the arts of the people, you know, uphold these arts um, and pass on these things. And so this isn't only a passion of mine to weave and to teach, but it's also an obligation as one of my nana's mukopuna. Mm. Mm. And so having pieces out there and promoting weaving, it's not about me, it's about upholding the art itself and ensuring that weaving is always held in the place where it should be, up high. Can I ask you, a lot of um, nuku whānau are really interested in um, learning about ceremonial practice and uh, learning about when to write an audiori, for example. How do you write an audiori? When, when would we do that? And how, how would we teach that to our tamariki? Or learning about ikura, you know, what were the ceremonial practices around our periods and, and what did that look like? When we look at kākahu, I know, for example, in my whānau, you know, when I graduated from university, we had our whānau um, kākahu, the really, really old one that is on all of our tūpāpaku and then it also goes on all of us who graduate. Mm. And we've worn that for graduations. And I know that I think a lot of people are familiar of when to wear certain kākahu, but are there ceremonial practices around when we should make one? So, for example... Um, for you, you're making one for a mukapuna to come. Would, for those um, wahine or tāne who are really interested in finding a time in their life when it might be, they might want to do, you know, do something quite significant and learn something quite significant and work their way towards mm. a kākahu, are there ceremonial times when we would weave kākahu? No. Oh? No. When you think kākahu were woven to protect us from the elements, mm. they we didn't have these <laughs> shirts and jeans and, and, jackets. and hoodies and, <laughs> you know, Adidas jackets. We had kākahu. Our weavers <coughs> wove to keep us dry, to keep us warm. 
And it just so happened these garments were woven with flair and with style and were adorned with the feathers of the most beautiful birds. We all had our... fashion designers do today. Absolutely. (laughs) And each weaver way back then even had her own signature weave. Mm. You know, we all had our own style and we still do. So if I want to start weaving a kākahu in January, I will. I think what um, dictates the weaving of kākahu, though, I'm really sorry about this noise. That's okay. (laughs) Is the seasons. So it's the seasons that dictate when some things can or shouldn't be or it's harder to weave. Mm. Pupi, for example, it needs the sun, the bright, strong sun, to curl up and to become white. So pupi are best made in summertime. Um, you can't gather harakeki when it's rainy or windy, i.e. the winter months, quite often. So making mukha in summertime works well. And then in the winter months, you can sit inside mm. next to your heater or whatever, all rugged up, and focus on weaving. And that's how my mother lived her life. She was very much a exponent, I suppose. I don't know if that's the right word to use, of te whare pora and that she lived her life according to the seasons, not according to the calendar. Mm. So she did all of her prep work in summer and she wove in winter and in springtime or towards the end of the year, her art, her completed piece would, you know, come forth into te ao marama, into te ao marama. That's the time to weave. Mm. I have a number of things on the go at any one time. So I have an incomplete kitty. I have some tāniko. I have this all this mukha to make for this <laughs> kōrawai that I want to finish in a month's time. But I have all of these things going because I weave every single day. And if I don't weave every single day, I feel it has been a day lost. My mother, um, when she passed away, before she passed away, she le- she told my dad, there's all my diaries, and when I die, I want you to read them. I have all of my mum's diaries, and I'm making my way through them. She kept a, a written journal every day of her life. So I've got two um, very high piles of diaries to make my way through. And it's quite a, um, a difficult task, mm. reading her words. <coughs> Especially when I read things like, I was so upset with Beryl today, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry, Mum. I was just going to ask that. Was there any gossip in there or when you were naughty or whatever you've done? But um, there are so many sketches and ideas that she's doodled, Mm. you know, and I think she passed away and she took all of that with her. And I don't want to die with a head full of incomplete work. I don't. I don't want to take it with me or leave it in a diary. I just, I've got all these ideas in my head that I need to get out. So in order to do that, because I'm 54 now, I need to weave every day. Mm. Mm. Have you, so you've, you're a mama of five. Mm. Do your five tamariki, have they taken after their parents in weaving yeah, and carving? They, all of my sons carve. Wow. Um, my eldest son, my eldest two sons uh, create the power shell and metal cloaks. Their nanny taught them, so they're very lucky. 
they're the only two that she taught to make them outside of myself. Mm. Um, my third and fourth son both carve. My fourth son is a beautiful painter and my daughter weaves and she paints. She painted that hui out there with the butterflies up on the oh, top shelf. Yeah. yeah. So they're all extremely creative, which is really cool. It's really cool, and it's really it's really cool when Sam and I are sitting here having a talk about a design or a, a concept for something, and they all take part in that discussion. So this piece of art becomes this collaborative piece, a piece that has been created by my entire family, including my papa. Wow. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, when I look around your house and I see all of these beautiful pieces of artwork and I see... Um, <laughs> it's almost hard to know where to start when you think of the painting and the weaving and the carving and the hue and the, you know, oh, just... And the guitars and <laughs> every every element of it. Is there something that you could point at in this whareo and say, that's the one thing I'm most proud of? Um, I don't... I, oh, that's a really... That's one of those, which one of your children is your favourite questions, isn't it? Yes, it yeah. is. Um... Well, you know I love the quilt I made to represent Mum's teaching mm. and I am very proud of having um, having created that and having designed it. Um, what was your question again? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is the thing. You're like, I can't choose. I don't know. It was... But I haven't created it yet. I, I don't think I've created mm. it yet. But you want to know what is here now, don't you? No, well, I like the fact that you haven't created it yet. But my, but then I wonder, will you ever create it? Because once you make, once you make it, you're just going to think of yeah another way to yeah, and that's why else. I'm not a master weaver. So if we were to talk about every single um, material that you work with, mm. we probably could you know, do a whole nother five podcasts <laughs> around each of those. So what I'd like to ask you is, is there one material that you work with that... As my favourite child? <laughs> maybe not your most, maybe not your most favourite, but like just something that's really interesting that we don't know about. Harakiki is my favourite child, by the way. <laughs> no, my favourite, not my favourite child. My favourite um, material because so much can be done with it and, of course, because it yields muka. Mm. Mm. Tell me about the harakiki plant because, I I mean, I'm familiar with the harakiki plant. I know that the harakiki plant is representative of a whānau and how it grows and I assume that Aotearoa is the only place and the best place that, that harakiki grows and, and thrives. Um, but what, what, what is it about? Aside from the fact that it creates mocha that you make most of your things out of. Harakiki is like us as a people mm. and that... You put Māori people anywhere and we will thrive. We will. As long as we have whānau, we will thrive. Look how many of our people live in Perth 
which is so far removed. The climate, the landscape is so far mm. removed from anything in Aotearoa, and yet our people thrive over there because they're with whānau. Hey. Harakeke is like that to me. I've been to Scotland and I've woven with Harakeke from the bottom of Scotland to the top of Scotland. Wow. And it's beautiful. Do they call it flax there? They call it flax. Oh, yeah. See, Harakeke isn't really a flax. It's of the lily family. But some botanists way back in the day said, oh, let's call it flax. (laughs) (laughs) My nan used to always say, don't say the F word in my house and it was flax. You call it harakiki. It's a four-letter word. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It grows in America. You know, I could be watching something on TV and I'll push pause and scream out, there's harakiki by Uh their front door. And it's some cop show on set in America. We know it grows in Australia. But I went to this little island in the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean. It's in between Angola and Brazil. It's right in the middle. So to get there, I had to fly to South Africa, wait for a cargo ship. Wow. And be taken to this cargo ship and sailed for six days to this little island, dropped off and the ship turned around and went back to Cape Town and left me there for five weeks. But I was paid to go there by the British government because it's part of the British Empire. (laughs) But some New Zealander, a New Zealand guy, took a few plants, harakeke plants there, way back in the early 1900s, and now they have a problem because that harakeke, just like our people... (laughs) thrives mm. as long as it's got whānau. So there were a few harakeke plants and now it has gotten to the point where this plant is killing off their endemic species. Oh no. I know. So they call harakeke a weed. <laughs> so they they took me, uh, they shipped me there, literally shipped me there to teach some of the people there how to weave with this plant and to also take care of the problem. If you can look out of my windows now and look up at Pukeatua and all you see are leaves, plants, green waves Mm. swaying, that is St Helena Island. Wow. It was incredible. Needless to say, I did not take care of their problem. (laughs) (laughs) But Harakiki is special like that in that it thrives in any environment. But we must also remember that we need to look after it Mm. and we need to gather it properly. We need to... Like, there are some councils that won't allow weavers to cut from their plants and council grounds and you can drive past a week later and they're chainsawed it. You know, that's not looking after this plant that we need to to treasure Mm. because that's what it is. It's an absolute treasure and it's ours. When you went over to that island, was um, and you taught some of the people there oh. what to do with harakeke, did they have any interesting creative ways of, of their own that they well, used for the harakeke? The people of St Helena Island, um, you know, they're, they're totally isolated. When I say I was dropped off, I was... I was on a, <laughs> Literally plonked on I an was island. on an island, and even if I wanted to leave, and there were times when I did want to leave... Mm. Because unlike the flags, I only had myself. Now, if I look, every window that I look out of my house, I can see 
a whānau member. Mm. My son, my brother, my cousin, my auntie at the back, my auntie over there. Over there, I was totally alone. Mm. I had no one, but I had the flax. And I think I grew closer to the flax. The St. Helenian, the saints, they called themselves saints, um, they were renowned for lace making. And so I had this idea, well, I would teach them how to make mocha so they can make lace out of mocha. But they were more interested in the basketry side of things. And a few of them have continued weaving. See, unfortunately, it didn't go as I had planned. I wanted to go there and I told them beforehand that for the five weeks I was there, I would teach the same 12 people, just the same 12 people every day, Mm. so that when I left, they had a really good foundation and then they could go on and teach others. For the very first class I had, there were over 30 people and some of them had never worked with their hands before. And the next day, I had some new people that weren't in the first class. And on Sundays I had school kids, which is fine, but I would never see them again. Yeah. So I didn't leave St Helena Island having accomplished what I set out to. Um, There was a blind woman, however, who learnt how to make roses. Wow. So that, to me, was probably the greatest achievement of that time there. Mm. Mm. But it was a wonderful experience. An absolutely incredible experience. I mean, going to the house where Napoleon died was really incredible because one of my ancestors was an officer in his navy. Wow. Hit it. It's French. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the whole thing. But it was the flax that drew me there. My most incredible um, trips around this world have been because of harakeke. It's the harakeke that that took me to Scotland or to to Holland. So um, when you say I have, I have five children, I have five children and harakeke. Mm. Mm. We've we've spoken a lot about your mum and your grandmother and uh, some of these other really influential and powerful wahine that have been in your life. And you can still repeat if it's if it is one of them, but I would like to ask you who is an indigenous woman that has inspired you on your journey? Yeah, my great grandmother, Rangi Māori, my auntie Digger, Diggeress Tikanoa, my mum, mm. my sister Lillian, who is one of the strongest Māori women I've ever met. And Nanny June Mead. Mm. What is it about those women that have well, and that have inspired you? You know, one thing about all of them: my nana, my auntie, my mum, my sister, and Nanny June. They are classy women. Absolute class and passionate about what they did and what they wanted to do. Um, Humble, gracious, very gracious, giving. These are the things that these women all have in common. Mm. Very giving, very caring, empathetic. I guess the word aroha 
um, that term can be used to cover everything that those women are and were to me. Because out of all those women, it's only my sister here. <laughs> They've all since passed on. But they still inspire me. And I think that's their legacy. Their legacy is to, even though not here physically, to continue to inspire and and to teach through the lessons that they have left or the things that they have left or the words they left with you. When we think of their legacy and, and think of you and what you're going to leave in this world, what is your hope for the future of Indigenous women? I, I would hope... I mean, we're getting stronger because I think we're finding our voice mm. and you are giving people a platform to have their voice. I think it's important that... Um, well, it's easier to, to be strong and to have a voice if you first find the thing that you are best at. Find the thing that makes you want to get up in the morning. Find the thing that makes you want to work on the weekends and in the evenings. Find it and get really good at it. And get really good at it and then share it. Mm. And just keep striving to be better at what you want to do. I know that you are extremely humble <laughs> so I'm going to force you <laughs> to take this opportunity to share information with people around how they can find um, Heta School of Māori Art how they might be able to um, follow you online and, and see your mahi. I know um, I have seen little like one minute snippets of your day on video and even just that one minute of watching your hands weave is a, a, is a boost, is an inspiration, is a, oh, you know, it reconnects me to so many things about being an Indigenous woman. Mm. And so where can people find and follow you uh, online, and where can they find out more information about the Heads at School of Māori Art? Okay. Just want to talk very quickly about the one-minute video. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Those one-minute videos, like when I do, when I video and share online a minute of me doing tāniko, that is me saying, this is how much you can achieve in one minute, mm. 60 seconds of your day, and it will still be here in 300 years' time. So that one minute... <laughs> it's got this ripple effect, hasn't it? Yeah. It's still going to be here, that minute that you just spent. So those one-minute videos and all the other postings about my weaving uh, can be found on Facebook, Māori Weaving with Vera Norhead. <laughs> Sounds funny saying my own name. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the Het at School of Māori Art through... Where I teach is at www.hetitschoolofmariart.com and all of the courses can be found there, including the free course that we're offering for people to learn how to gather harakeke, how to prepare it, and how to weave a kono. That's beautiful. 
And is your mum's book still available? Yes, my mum's book is still available and that can be purchased from the Head at School of Māori Art website. And what's the name of that book? Māori Weaving with Ere Nora Pukitapu Hedit. That's beautiful. I just want to uh, give a huge mahi to you for um, sharing some, only a snippet of your journey with us today um, and for sharing such beautiful whakaro that we can actually align to our lives today. I think the one thing I would really love to take from this corridor of all the things that we spoke about was like Māori, you can plant harakeke anywhere and it will thrive. And I think of that um, philosophy for my whānau and I know that we will be okay no matter where we are in the world. If we stay connected with our whānau like harakeke, we will thrive. Mm -hmm. And I think that sums up a lot of what we've been speaking about today, but also who you are as a person. And so I just want to um, thank you for uh, having us in your whare, for sharing um, some of the stories of your beautiful, beautiful taonga. And I know that you're going to shrivel back when I say this next bit, but own it. I also want to thank you for keeping this mahi alive because as a wahine Māori who um, I, I guess often at times feel so disconnected from our culture and then so connected in other ways, when I look at Mahiraranga, when I look at Kākahu, when I look at our these taonga that are made, I think back to our most earliest tupuna and our tupuna wahine and, and dream of the lives that they once had. And it is wahine like you who keeps that going and who keeps that alive. And so I do want to honour you um, for doing that, no matter how much you want to go back in your chair and not listen. I do really want to honour you for that because that that mahi is absolutely breathtaking, not just from a visual stunning perspective, but from the, the deepest places inside you as a wahine Māori to know that these tanga still exist and are still being made today. And we really need to learn um, to take the time because we get so caught up in this modern world of things have to happen now and things have to happen fast and we need all these, you know, we need all of these possessions and all of, you know, all of this sort of stuff. And actually, when you think of how uh, a kākahua is made or a kete is made, you have to sit down and take the time. Mm. And I think that's a good lesson for us all to learn. So, tēnā koe. Tēnā koe.